I'll be reading Psalm 16 in the ESV. A victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Well, a good morning to you all. It is great to be here. Uh, My wife and I really love this church and love to be a part of it. Uh, She's at home sick today, so very disappointed we both can't be here. We have been called to minister at Calvary Presbyterian Willow Grove, and that's the reason you have not seen us. We appreciate your prayers for that work. I've learned a few things um, while there. One of those is I will not give any illustration from the local football team. (laughs) I was so excited when they beat Buffalo that I couldn't help but talk about them in my sermon. Ever since then, they have lost every game. (laughs) Some people would say... Some people would say there's no connection between the two, but I think we all know better. Now, for Psalm 16, a few psalms have a superscription that gives you a clue about what the psalm is all about. One of those is Psalm 3. This is really helpful. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Psalm 16 says a miktam of David. And nobody knows exactly what that means. There's been a lot of scholarly ink spilt on it without any firm conclusion. So we don't get any help from that superscription. So I'm going to take verse 7 which says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I take that as the setting for this psalm and what it's all about. It's a meditation arising from a troubled mind in the night. Now, sleep can be a problem. If you can't sleep, you miss out on one of life's great blessings. In one of Shakespeare's plays, 
a character describes the blessing of sleep when an evil man named Macbeth was causing people to worry so much that it was hard to sleep. And here's how Shakespeare describes sleep. Macbeth does murder sleep, the innocent sleep, sleep that knits up the raveled sleeve of care, the death of each day's life, sore labor's bath, balm of hurt minds, great nature's second course, chief nourisher in life's feast. Now, how did Macbeth murder sleep by being a murderer himself? And those around him were so horrified at what was going on that they were worried as they tossed on their beds. What do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night with something on your mind? I've had experiences in my life when the day's work was so stressful that I would collapse in bed, too exhausted to stay awake another minute, only to have that surface layer of exhaustion wear away in a couple of hours so that my worries could assert themselves, wake me up, and now keep me from falling back to sleep. Now my mind is going around in circles, and I'm hearing voices from people who maybe I've disappointed with something going on at work. I'm troubled with fears of what those voices will sound like if they ever confront me with that thing that I left undone or did not do to their liking. You could say my sleeves are raveled with care from the day's stress, as Shakespeare put it. The death of each day's life have left me feeling like I need a bath to wash away my sore labor. And I'm not getting the sleep that knits up those raveled sleeves. I'm going around in circles in my mind, and I can't fall asleep. I'm starving for that chief nourisher of life's feast. Now, Christians showing up for worship on Sunday morning, people like you and me, can have hurt minds. This is a big spiritual challenge. Sleep is the bomb of hurt minds. What can you do when you don't have the ability to sleep and your mind is not being soothed in the night? I'm probably speaking this morning to some of you who even went through this last night. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will experience this at some point in your life. And what will you do then? I love the words of Shakespeare about what it's like to not experience sleep and how important it is. But the Bible goes way beyond Shakespeare in that it gives us words that can bind up our wounds and even give us something better than sleep. 
So I want to explore Psalm 16 for us this morning as food for the soul in the middle of the night. And I'll tell you right up front, my main point is this. When you can't sleep, commune with God. And so let's begin this by tracing a progression of thoughts that David expresses in this meditation in the night. And first of all, the first thought, maybe this is the one that wakes him up. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. A sense of danger and the need for protection and for help. David had experiences of trouble that could easily lead to insomnia. One of those that was especially bad was when people began to doubt his leadership. In 1 Samuel 30, there's the story of Ziklag, his base at the time. David and his men had left Ziklag and gone out on a raid. While they were away, the Amalekites struck Ziklag, killed many, took the wives and the children and all kinds of property away, and David and his men returned to this disaster. And we read in 1 Samuel 36, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him. There's something to wake you up and give you distress in the middle of the night. When this happens, you feel like your whole being is threatened. And all your instincts seem to be saying the same thing. You're in a bad place. You need to somehow fix it and make things right. You need to figure out a way to turn things around. There must be a way to get out of this mess that surrounds you right now. Something is wrong, and you need to fix it. Well, the first line is a cry for help. Preserve me. Oh, God. Why would you call out for God to preserve you? Well, you have no other option. There's nothing else you can do. You can't fix those problems. You're not at work. You're not, not at with this person, perhaps, that you have a broken relationship with. There's nothing you can do. So you start by crying out, preserve me, oh God. And this is not so much like a well-thought-out prayer as a groan. God, help me. Now, when David cries out to God and tells God he is taking refuge in him, we should ask, what does it mean to take refuge in God? How do I do that? It doesn't mean that David gets up from his bed, leaves his house, and makes his way to the temple. No, he takes refuge in God right where he is. And the second verse really gives you an answer to the question of what it means to take refuge in God. Here it is. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. When he says, you are my Lord, this is a bold statement. It's saying God belongs to David. How can a man have any claim on God? How can David make the statement, you are my Lord, as though God 
was his possession. Well, the only way this can happen is for God to make a covenant, a solemn promise to David that he would take David to himself and make him and all Israel his people, and he would be their God. This is how God can come to be the possession of David and how David is possessed himself by God. This is the great affirmation of the covenant relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. Marriage is based on this. It's a covenant relationship. A husband and a wife can say to each other, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's the same thing with someone in covenant with God. My God is mine and I am his. This is what it is to take refuge in God. And as he's beginning to do this, he thinks about who God is. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He's not saying there's nothing good in the world except prayer or the experience of worship. David knows the blessing of all kinds of things in this world, like friendship. We read of the special bond that he had with Jonathan and how important that was. He knows the blessing of music. And David had experienced how his own music could soothe King Saul's troubled mind. What he is saying here is that if we focus on any good thing in this world, whether it's music or friendship or feasting or victory over enemies, success of any, any sort, if you focus on those things alone, you come up empty. They become worthless idols. It is only when you see those good things in your life as coming from God's hand that you receive those things with thanksgiving. That's when those things are good. Otherwise, everything, life, everything else in life is an idol, which eventually leaves us empty. Now, the next thought in verse 3 might be surprising. He's alone in the night, meditating on God, but now his thoughts turn to other people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We are never meant to walk with God in isolation. We commune with God, sometimes alone in our beds, but we're never detached from that community of the saints that we know. David thinks of people he knows. They are also people who say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That's what a saint is, after all. These are people who trust God, the people who take refuge in God when they are under siege. And it's comforting in the middle of the night to begin to think of people you love, who love you, who are the saints in the land. Maybe it's not so surprising at all that David turns from 
thinking about God and his grip on God and God's grip on him to thinking of these other followers of the Lord because they are in the image of God. You come to know God by seeing them. They're in God's image by creation. And by redemption, you can see them being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And you get encouragement from these other people. Now, the next thing is there are other things going on in this world, other people than the saints. In verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Now he's thinking about how not everybody in this world follows the Lord and takes refuge in him. Some people follow other gods. And although it's pretty bad for David to be up in the middle of the night with trouble on his mind, that's nothing compared to what, await, what awaits some people. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. That is, things get worse and worse for those who rebel against God. If you run after idols, your troubles multiply. It's like money gaining compound interest over time and building up and growing. The troubles in this life for those outside of relationship with God are only growing. And David seems to get a hint of encouragement from this very thing that he knows the troubles he experienced now will end. God will eventually bring blessing back to him. He writes in Psalm 30, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. The trouble of those without God will only multiply and get worse and worse. And as he thinks about this, David says, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out. He will not turn away from God. It's an amazing thing that when trouble strikes in the middle of the night, you may feel like you've never felt before that all you want is God's goodness. You've had it with this world. You've had it with sin. You don't want the slightest hint of evil to be on your lips or in your mind because you know that all of that is the source of trouble and sorrow. Maybe this is what Peter means when he writes, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's not that you stop sinning altogether. It's just that for this brief moment, you can really feel in your gut, I have had it with evil. I don't want it. And now this progression of thought that gets us into verse 5 begins to show us that what had begun with a moan for God's help is moving to a place of contentment. As David swears he will not run after other gods, he remembers that he has entered into covenant with God. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He realizes he has his troubles, 
And those troubles make him sense that the last thing he wants is to be apart from God. And that brings about this realization. He really did choose God to be his chief object of delight. He is God's man. He has chosen to follow him. And so God, in turn, is his chosen possession. He actually possesses God. Let this sink in the next time it's worry about finances that has you up in the middle of the night. If you follow Christ, God is your chosen portion. He is your possession, your inheritance. This is way beyond what anyone could look forward to, even if he was the heir of Bill Gates. All of that is going to disappear and burn up in nothing. But those who belong to God have an eternal inheritance. And suddenly, you're at an emotional place in this psalm where God brings about the thought that his circumstances are actually wonderful. In verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is language from the dividing up of the promised land among the tribes of Israel. The land was divided up by lot and the boundary lines established by the providential rule of God. So all the events of David's life, its people, its connections, and especially his troubles, all of it is something that comes from God's hand and design. Even in trouble, we can rest because God is the one who has written out my life. And that makes it such a compelling story because of who the author is. All of the lines of our stories have been written out by God. Have you ever caught the way David expresses this in Psalm 139? In your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me when there was none of them. Everything going on in your life has been written out in God's book. And he is the all-wise and perfectly kind author, even in trouble. Now, into verses 7 and 8, from seeing God's good providential hand, the thought now moves to a whole new realm. From verse 7 on, there is the striking sense that fear has been replaced by comfort. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. And this is one of the most powerful pictures in the Psalms of the healing of the mind that happens when you take your troubles and cares to God. And there are several psalms like this. Not all of them. Some of them never get out of the pit. But this is an example of this happening. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken, verse 8 says. Remember how the psalm began? crying out to God in a way that could hardly be thought confident. But this is what happens 
when you take refuge in God. Who God is to you and for you begins to change your whole perspective. When David says, I have set the Lord always before me, this is certainly a statement about how he lives every day, but it's also a pretty good description of what he does when he can't sleep. He sets the Lord before him. And when you do that, something happens to you. You begin to take courage. God says over and over again in Scripture, fear not, for I am with you. When you begin to realize God is with you, and you are with God because you are calling out to him and taking refuge in him, the truth about what happens to those who are near to God dawns on you. You will not be shaken. So in this progression of thoughts, we've moved to a place of confidence. Now, another step in looking at Psalm 16 is to pick up the different voices that you hear. What I mean by that are different statements of communion with God, and they vary slightly. As you trace it out, you hear David speaking directly to God. He refers to God as you. Then you also hear him speaking about God, as though he's speaking only to himself. And then we are told that God, David's own heart was speaking to him. So in verses 1, 5, and 10, you can see this. He speaks to God directly. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He's praying. He speaks directly to God. And this is what it is to take refuge in God and to commune with him. This is the first ingredient in communion with God. We speak to him. We use the pronoun you. But then there's also speaking about God in verses 5 and 7. He's not speaking directly to God at this point, but I suppose speaking to himself, reflecting about God. The Lord is my chosen portion in verse 5. I bless the Lord in verse 7. In the middle of the night, David speaks about God as if he was journaling his thoughts, speaking about God, not in this case directly, but about him. But then, you have to ask the question, if this is a psalm about communion with God, how about God speaking? Shouldn't we expect to hear God speak directly in response to David? But as you read this psalm, you don't find any words in Psalm 16 as you find elsewhere in Scripture, such as, then the word of the Lord came to me. The Bible is full of direct words from God that are prefaced with an indication that these are the very words of God. But in this psalm, that is probably one of the supreme examples in all Scripture of close communion with God, God doesn't speak. He doesn't utter a word. How do you explain that? And I think the answer to this question is verse 7, the very heart of the psalm. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. Something was coming out of David's heart. His heart was instructing him 
in the night. What bubbles up from David's heart in the middle of the night is the word of God that he had been taught, that he had read, no doubt that he had memorized. The whole of Psalm 16 is full of these scriptural, biblical echoes of God's word. We've seen them. You are my Lord. That only comes from the revelation of the covenant. The sorrows of those will multiply who run after other gods. That's a good summary of all the warnings in Scripture about turning away from God to idols. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, coming right out of the allotting of the various places in the promised land. You make known to me the path of life in verse 11. This is the God who is the creator and sustainer of life. And that to be near God is to be assured of life. That too, a great theme of scripture. It is the devil who is a murderer from the beginning. The true and living God is the Lord of life. So to sum this up, in the night my heart instructs me, God is speaking to David in the middle of the night, not in an audible voice, not in a brand new, this is what God says, but in the storehouse of biblical revelation that was in David's heart. Now think about that. This is one of the reasons we are here this morning. God is speaking to you through his word. And you take this word into your heart when you need it, such as when you wake up in the middle of the night in a crisis, you then find you have something to help you. Your heart will be able to instruct you. In a mysterious way, God the Holy Spirit will be giving you counsel. God the Holy Spirit, who is behind the truth of God bubbling up from your heart. No wonder... Westminster Shorter Catechism teaches us to treasure the preaching of the word by telling us we must attend to it with diligent preparation and prayer, receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. If you lay this word up in your hearts, it will be there when you need it, especially in time of crisis. Now, there's one other way that you see God speaking in Psalm 16. David's son, his great and ultimate son, Jesus, knew the Psalms better than anyone. The great Dutch preacher and theologian, a hero for his resistance to the Nazis in World War II, Klaus Skilder, called Jesus the greatest singer of the Psalms. I think we should use our imagination to see Jesus withdrawing by himself to pray, continuing in prayer all night, probably using Psalm 16, among other passages of Scripture, wrestling with a sense of being threatened and finding refuge in God. And we have very good reason to be able to imagine Jesus risen from the dead, meeting with his disciples and opening up the scriptures. 
to him. That's what we're told, especially at the end of Luke's gospel. This is what he did after his resurrection. One of the most memorable sermons I ever heard from Dr. James Boyce was how looking at the apostles' preaching in Acts gives you a view into what Jesus must have taught them about how to read the Bible after he was raised from the dead. And I imagine Jesus saying to them something like this, Take the psalm, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I have used this countless times in communion with my Father in the dark hours of the night. Do you know when it concludes, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption? This goes way beyond anything David ever knew. He was being carried along by the Holy Spirit and using what sounds like extravagant language about God as the Lord of life. David died, and his body was buried and returned to the earth. But when he wrote this psalm, he wrote as a prophet. And through him, the Holy Spirit has promised that in this psalm, the son of David would not see corruption. And I stand before you, I imagine Jesus saying, as the fulfillment of this psalm. Now I enjoy fullness of joy. I taste the pleasures of God's right hand forever. We know that something like that instruction had to have been given to the apostles. Peter, who time and again showed he had no clue what Jesus had come to do and was reduced to utter, utter despair when in his bravado about never denying Jesus, he was shown to be ridiculous and pathetic and reduced to tears this Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost to preach to the crowds who had gathered, which no doubt had all kinds of intimidating figures who thought they utterly owned the interpretation of Scripture. And Peter says this in Acts 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter could only have gotten this from the lips of Jesus teaching him and the others in his resurrection glory. Now, if you are struggling with insomnia, certainly use whatever remedies are natural and good, like getting the exercise we ought to get. They say we should avoid eating too late. No caffeine after 6 p.m., but it's wonderful before then. Whatever else can work for you, use it, but when sleep flees in the middle of the night, try this. Tell yourself this actually could be a an opportunity for you, for communion with the triune God. This actually might be that it's God waking you up because he wants you 
in the middle of the night. And he wants to draw near to you. So take refuge in him. Tell him he is your God and confess that apart from him you have no good in this world. Think of the Christians you know who love you and who support you. Pray for them. Think of all those perhaps idle references you made. I'll be praying for you. And remember that you said that. And now follow through on that. And pray for those people that you are connected with. Let your heart draw out the truth about God that you have read in Scripture and heard preached and been reminded of visibly at the Lord's table. Let your heart instruct you that in God's presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And most of all, remember that Jesus would have recited this psalm in his own sleepless nights and fulfilled it in his resurrection from the dead. Think about how verse 3 in some ways makes this a dead giveaway, that this is a psalm of Christ. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Who could say that any better any more truthfully than Jesus. This is how Jesus feels about his people and about you as you belong to him. He went to the cross for you, redeeming you with his own blood. And if you get out of bed to, communion, to commune with God, maybe you get down on your knees in your darkened room, remember your Savior, the risen Christ, who for your sake, the night he was betrayed, never saw a bed. He was awake all night, shuffled back and forth between ruling authorities who had no idea what to do with him, flogged into an ugly condition of blood and gore before he ever made the terrible walk to Golgotha. He was up all night. An aspect of his suffering we don't normally think about. His followers fled probably to their beds in comfort while he went to suffering for them. An aspect of his suffering that we would remember in the middle of the night and say, oh Lord Jesus, you did this for me. I worship you. He knows what it feels like and way beyond what you've experienced. As uncomfortable as it is not to be able to sleep, you will never be cut off out of the land of the living the way Jesus was. Maybe he wants fellowship with you, and that's why you can't sleep. So if you are awake in the middle of the night, brothers and sisters, when you can't sleep, commune with God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you with thankfulness that you have given the scriptures to us. And we pray that the comfort and the encouragement of the scriptures would help, especially those who are struggling 
here this morning who have had difficult nights lately. And we pray that this would bind them more closely to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.